Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new countdown for the end of continuing resolution season. I've sort of circled the, the end of March as sort of a, a drop dead on that. And the improper payment calculation could be missing some important numbers. There is a, a cost sometimes in terms of layering on additional audit bodies and oversight bodies. It's Friday, January 14th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. My thanks to Billy Mitchell for hosting while I enjoyed some time off. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Department will announce a new leader for next-generation wireless telecom, according to the agency's chief technology officer. Heidi Shu says a candidate to become next-G lead at the department is in the hiring process, but leaders haven't announced his name internally. Shu says she's pushing for the department to start to invest in sixth- and seventh-generation communication technology. Federal agencies still struggle to share information about cyber attacks after the solar winds breach. The Government Accountability Office found agencies like the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency had trouble sharing information because of classification levels, among other reasons. GAO writes out of 3,700 cyber recommendations it's made since 2010, agencies haven't implemented about 900. You can read more about these and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. It's not too early to plan for IT Mod Week. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around D.C. with lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A full year continuing resolution is either more likely every day or less likely, depending who you listen to. But budget fights no one was expecting are woven into the debate. Roman Schweizer's managing director for aerospace and defense in the Washington Research Group for Cal and Roman. Welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The nugget that you buried in your uh, most recent brief was striking to me. You write, DOD Comptroller Mike McCourt's testimony included the detail that he had to approve two increases so far in fiscal 22 to cover higher fuel prices that's created a billion and a half dollar bill for the services. And you're right, it's not clear where that money was shifted from to cover higher fuel prices. Roman, that means a lot of people budget-wise, even in the continuing resolution, will probably have to be doing a lot of things to fight inflation. Thanks for coming on today, Roman. Well, uh, thank you, Francis. It's a pleasure to be here, and, uh, and Happy New Year to you, and, and certainly all the listeners. Um, yeah, I, I mean, first off, uh, before we get in, even into budget fights, uh, it seems like there's an inflation fight uh, that the Pentagon is dealing with in real time. Um, and obviously, there are concerns that uh, it, it's going to reduce the buying power uh, of the department, particularly in the investment accounts, research and development uh, and acquisition, right? Because personnel costs are what they are. Uh, operations and maintenance are, are important to, the, uh, to keeping the, the force ready. Uh, and obviously, with uh, events uh, in Europe and Asia, uh, you know, there's a priority on keeping those forces ready. Uh, so, uh, you know, the comptroller, uh, as, as you alluded and as I, as I published, uh, you know, had to, had to start moving money to do that. Um, typically, DUD will do a big uh, midsummer repro- reprogramming, omnibus reprogramming. Uh, that, that may be the, the sort of next time we get to see that unless there are some hearings on the issue beforehand, uh, if the Pentagon really needs to move uh, significant funds around. 
and, and obviously, uh, it, you know, the, the rate of inflation, you know, whether it's uh, five, six, seven, or, you know, perhaps even higher in some defense specific segments, uh, it is a big, it is a, is a real issue you kind of have to deal with. You can't get around it, uh, you know, as uh, whether it's personnel or, or uh, materials pricing, or in this case, this was related to uh, increased fuel costs. Um, so, you know, the, the bur- you know, the burden of those costs, uh, you know, there's only a certain amount of pots of money that you can go to uh, to find those. Uh, and, and so I think we're going to, you know, I, I think uh, certainly uh, investors, uh, and, and defense companies will be, be looking to see how those funds are dealt with uh, in the current year. Uh, and then also, I mean, it does apply uh, apply to the spending deal. Um, you know, right now, um, you know, it looks like uh, defense will get a 5% uh, year-over-year increase in spending. That's what the NDAA uh, approved. Uh, that's what the Democrats have offered. Uh, and, you know, that 5% kind of maybe just covers inflation. Um, and then just even looking beyond that, uh, we've got a fiscal 23 budget that's going to be released at some point. Uh, and how is the administration going to factor in um, inflation into that? Uh, you know, how many years does it affect? What's the, uh, you know, uh, prescribed uh, rate of inflation? And is the administration going to increase the Pentagon's budget by five or six percent to allow for real growth? Uh, and then, of course, when you get to the idea that Republicans want three to 5% real growth, uh, those numbers get pretty high. So this is, this is a very um, uh, important uh, and potentially uh, very impactful uh, dilemma that uh, I think Congress and the department and the White House are in right now. There are a lot of moving parts here, Roman, as you allude to, but you're right. We still think a full year CR is unlikely. I alluded to the kind of schools of thought at the beginning of this conversation. What puts you in that camp right now, Roman? What do you see that gives you optimism that the two sides will be able to reach a deal? Well, uh, so first of all, defense has never, never been under a full year CR. So I think there's some folks that, you know, like debt ceiling raises and, um, you know, government shutdowns and things like that. I think people, you know, always think there's a low probability of the, of the worst case. Um, But, you know, there was a hearing uh, this week, House Appropriators uh, held a hearing. Uh, Democrats wanted to, um, you know, highlight the the damage done to the Pentagon under the uh, under uh, full year CR. And uh, and and really, Republicans kind of threw it back at them and and said, look, this is not about spending. Uh, And that's something that I've kind of suggested for months. Uh, really, the issue here are uh, sort of poison pill and uh, and policy riders that Democrats want to include in appropriations and and, and other bills, uh, including um, the Hyde Amendment, which would uh, which would bar the use of federal funds to pay for abortion, um, and and so there are sort of longstanding policy changes that uh, that Democrats are either looking to change. Uh, or new ones that they're looking to implement. And I think what Republicans are saying is, hey, we, we've negotiated in good faith and, and you know, negotiated bicameral, bipartisan deals uh, in the past using these ground rules. And let's stick to those ground rules and just have a debate about how much money defense and non-defense should get. And we'll go from there. Um, so again, it, it's, you know, we're you know, I, I think the the, the Repu- and certainly the Republicans feel that if you know they do not want to accept uh, these changes that Democrats want, and and they're happy to go the full C- full year CR route uh, to prevent them. 
Uh, and, and again, I think there's always some look forward into what November might bring. Uh, and so they certainly don't want to sign up for something that uh, could sort of be washed away if the uh, political winds change uh, significantly after the November midterms. The inflation item that you mentioned earlier is potentially a big problem here because I saw a note while I was gone. The National Treasury Employees Union is supporting legislation to increase federal employee pay 5 percent next year. That means that probably a 5 percent increase for military pay. And you mentioned a moment ago uh, that personnel costs in the Defense Department are what they are. And it strikes me that the numbers keep piling on top of each other as we're thinking not just about 23, but about what we're going to have to think about for the rest of fiscal 22, right, Roman? Well, cor- correct. And and I mean, you know, uh, so one, you know, near term in 22, you sort of need to move money around and shift funds to sort of um, address must-pay bills. Um, but then when you get out to fiscal 23 and beyond, I mean, again, when, when whenever the Biden administration releases the fiscal 23 budget, and that's probably going to be, you know, maybe a month late now, so maybe sometime into, into the March timeframe, you know, OMB is going to do a 10-year uh, budget projection. Uh, and, and so, again, thinking about how long is uh, the, you know, these, infl- are, are we going to be under these inflationary effects? Uh, are they temporary? Are they transitory? Right, as as uh, the Fed and others may say, uh, what is the multi-year impact of that? And, and again, in, inflation affects every account, uh, and so these numbers do start to pile on them, uh, you know, on top of one another pretty significantly. Uh, and then you, you know you do get into a, a fact of that that increases the budget deficit, that increases the debt, and that does create uh, you know sort of a circle of pressure uh, on spending. So. Uh, it's a real issue. And I I think that's also part of the reason, you know, folks have have talked about how, um, you know, DOD has not gotten its traditional pass back uh, number yet for the fiscal 23 budget uh, to inform not only this year's budget, but long-term planning. Uh, And and I think the administration is figuring out how to address um, uh, the the inflationary uh, uh, impacts that we're seeing both today and also realistically or, you know, um, pragmatically projecting them into the future. All right. Uh, regarding fiscal 22, we still have a month until the current continuing resolution expires. Given where we are in the budget cycle with the back and forth still happening that you described earlier and that you write about in your most recent brief, are you optimistic, pessimistic, or neutral that we'll get another CR at least maybe just a couple of days or maybe another month or whatever or do you think it's possible we could see the final deal, whatever it's going to be, by mid-February? Uh, I've always been a little more uh, pessimistic. I think, you know, I, I've sort of circled the, the end of March as, as sort of a, you know, the, the drop dead on that. Um, you know, and, and again, you're going to need a few weeks. Um, you know, Congress can move pretty fast when it wants to, but, you know, to turn a spending deal into legislation and complete all of the appropriations bills, um, you know, depending on, on where those top line numbers settle out, um, you know, the, the Senate Democrats proposal is, uh, you know, plus five for defense, uh, plus five percent year over year, plus 13 percent for non-defense. Um, you know, some of those bills uh, or most all of those bills have already been marked up in the House. Um, you know, so you're going to have to do uh, uh, do some more than cosmetic surgery on all of those to turn them into uh, to spending bills. 
I think you know there there's a report today that uh, the, the the heads of the the, the appropri appropriations committees uh, that the, the chairs and rankings met um, I guess yesterday uh, to sort of start to lay out the framework and and to sort of I think really work through this bigger issue about policy riders and poison pills. Um, I, I think we could maybe, you know, certainly get to the the parameters of a, of a budget deal, uh, you know, within, you know, no more than two weeks. Uh, and then that gives you another two weeks to turn it all in the legislation. So, so I, I think your scenario of a patch, whether it's, um, you know, a few days or even, um, you know, till the end of February, you know, that, that, that would probably be the most optimistic scenario. Um, I also think, you know, there, there's a lot of other legislation trying to be moved um, by both the House and Senate. Um, the, I think uh, given recent events on, on the Voting Rights Act and, and Build Back Better, uh, they may be calling a timeout on some of that stuff to actually get some other things done. Uh, so, I, so I do think, you know, it's, it's a good time to maybe put the spending, you know, get the spending fight off the table, get that done. Uh, and, and also there's some some China legislation that's in the hopper as well that that could get moved uh, in a prior, you know, kind of clear the decks um, to set up what's probably going to be, you know, bigger drawn out fights on on the filibuster and build back better and voting rights and things like that. Roman Schweizer, great insight as always. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to Roman's brief in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The federal government's improper payments rate is up over fiscal 2020, but OMB points out not every improper payment is an improper payment. Danny Werfel runs the government practice at the Boston Consulting Group. He's former controller at the Office of Management and Budget. And Danny, I have always considered you my improper payments guru, and apparently I'm not the only one. You told me before we went on the air about your kids and the way that they think about you at work. Welcome, Danny. Yeah, Francis. Oh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, and the uh, the reality is I spent 10 years of my career at OMB um, immersed in improper payments, uh, you know, obsessed with it, uh, helping launch the original law, the Improper Payments Information Act of 2002. Um, and, and my kids who were younger back then, you know, never really understood what I did, but uh, but they had this uh, impression of daddy at work that went something like this, blah, 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 improper payments, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think that's just because I always talked about improper payments, whether on the phone or testifying, uh, you know, they, they came with me to my Senate confirmation hearing, which they sort of remember now and claim it was the most boring moment of their lives. And there was a lot of improper payment talk during that hearing. Um, that That's one of the best stories that I've ever heard, not just in the Daily Scoop podcast, because I'm just imagining your kids, little kids walking around the house doing that, making that sound. I just think that's hilarious. I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation, Danny, that OMB points out in their most recent updated data on improper payments, um, not everyone is improper. It writes, even in cases where improper payments are subsequently recovered, they're still counted as improper. That's the uh, pay and chase problem that you and I have been talking about for a number of years. Do you get any sense from this new data, Danny, that we're making progress on pay and chase? 
You know, I mean, I think it's it's a tough year to pull any deeper conclusion right now because the reality is is that you know you're taking a lot of data from uh, from the, the pandemic, where a lot of our organizations uh, and a lot of the relevant programs were overwhelmed by uh, by new and different uh, issues, exigencies, and requirements, and so. You know, I think we have to kind of, I, I, I think the administration, the government, OMB, the agencies have been at this and committed to this challenge for a long time. But I think nothing could prepare the, the system for, uh, for the complexity that the pandem- pandemic wrought on programs like the unemployment insurance program. So I'm going to hold out a little bit, uh, you know, and see how the data rebounds to get a sense of it. But I do agree with this overall conclusion, like as a taxpayer, you know, now as a as a as someone outside of government, you know, I really want the, the government focusing on on where there truly is a, a an impact on taxpayer dollars. So um, so if the reality is that certain errors are are recoverable and certain errors are not recoverable, let's uh, let's make sure we're doing really well and transparent on the on preventing the dollars that are unrecoverable. This guidance from the Office of Management and Budget, Danny says we've also been working closely from the oversight community with the oversight community, including IGs and the Government Accountability Office, and there also is. The PRAC, which OMB cites a number of times in this work, and the Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery that Brian Miller heads, a former GSA Inspector General, there's a lot of oversight already on where the money is going as a result of the pandemic and and the recovery along with it. What's your sense of how that community is working together, is all pulling the same direction, and the impact that that potentially will have moving forward in in the out years for controlling improper payments? It's a really interesting question, Francis. You know, decades ago, the, um, the, the government community recognized that there were too many layers of audits. There was a, a fair amount of confusion in the field in terms of what the requirements were, a lot of burden associated with various layer of oversight. And that created something called the Single Audit and the Single Audit Act, which required um, all of these audits to to be consolidated into a kind of a one-stop shop um, and is intended to drive coordination amongst the oversight entities. But when you have something emerge that's new and large and risky, and we saw it with with the TARP program, which had a special inspector general, we saw it with the Recovery Act, which uh, had the RAT board. And here we go uh, again. You know, it takes a while for those audit layers to calibrate. And so, you know, I think the, 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 the there's the right intent, the right guiding principles. But there is a, a cost sometimes in terms of layering on additional audit bodies and oversight bodies, because then 
they're spending time coordinating versus getting to the uh, to the bottom line issues in a way that's helpful to the overall process. But again, I think it's a little bit too early to learn the lessons from uh, from this pandemic, from the rescue plan, from all the dollars that went in. I think we're going to have to take a step back in a few months or or next year and figure out what did we learn because this is you know not I don't know that a pandemic is going to keep on happening, but emergencies will happen. Governments will uh, the government will need to increase activity, increase spending in a high-risk environment. We just need to get better and better at it. Well, if we just track the the issues that you brought up with the rat board and, and so on, it appears we need this mechanism every 10 to 12 years. And one of the things that strikes me as dramatically different this time around than last time around is SIGI, the Council of Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency, is a lot more uh, strategic is a lot more involved in the oversight, building a community than it ever was before. Is that a fair read on my part? And what, and if so, what difference does that make in the way that not only the oversight community operates, but the agencies should operate knowing that the oversight community is potentially more active and more robust? That is a great insight. And, and, I'm, and I'm appreciative that the inspector general community can be self-reflective and figure out what continuous improvement journey it's on. I mean, when you're in the government and the inspector general is is assessing you, auditing you, investigating you, you know, a lot of people sit back and say, well, what if the inspector generals aren't doing it right? Like who's overseeing the inspector general? And the, the system really works best if the community reflects on its own strategic performance gaps and where it can get better. Um, and I think that's something that they they have embraced um, and look for ways to improve. And um, I think you're spot on that they're trying to figure out how in this unusual moment in time, you know, where there's a lot of, of uh, complexity and pressure and, and quite frankly, some life or death situations in which the way the government needs to operate effectively that they're trying to make sure that they're on the top of their game as well. All right. Uh, this interview did not sound like blah, 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 improper payments, my friend. You're terrific as always. I appreciate well, you coming my on. Kids are, are, my kids are older now. Um, so hopefully they, they're going to, you know, kind of pierce past the blah, blah, blah and get some of this. So um, I'm going to make them listen to it and uh, <laughs> I'll report back. All right. Thank you, my friend. Danny Werfel, great to talk to you as always. Thank you. You can find a link to OMB's data on improper payments in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes a programming note we're off monday for the martin luther king jr holiday our next show debuts tuesday afternoon until then i'm francis rose thanks for listening 